Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the World History Podcast. I am Mr. Hall, and today we are going to be talking about the second half of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, so we're going to kind of complete the lesson here, complete this first portion, or uh, complete this portion of our unit, uh, and we're going to focus on, you know, kind of the downfall of what happened with Martin Luther. Uh, we're going to then also talk about a couple of other movements, some other uh, branches of the Christian church that are going to break away from Catholicism. And we'll kind of end by talking a little bit about how did that have an impact on some other things, such as politics and so on. So there's a few things that you should have have done before listening to this podcast. Uh, first, you should go back and listen to part one if you haven't yet and complete part one's activity with it. Um, you should also have completed parts B and C in your note packet. Uh, again, I do recommend having the notes or the slides up while you are listening to this. If not, that is not big of a deal. Uh, but you also should have gone and watched the YouTube video on, um, on Henry VIII, Oversimplified. Okay, first of all, it is hilarious. And I honestly think you guys will really, really enjoy it. Uh, it, it's about 20 some minutes long. It's, I know that's a little on the long end, but it is really good. And it, it explains Henry VIII much better than I can. And I'm actually going to skip over Henry VIII in this discussion, assuming that you go and watch that video. Um, so absolutely, please go watch that. I know you guys will enjoy it. But just to kind of recap, we left off, uh, last time on last episode, talking about, you know, Martin Luther and kind of giving a little bit of background about Martin Luther and, and how he came to want to push back against the Catholic Church. Now, we also mentioned the Holy Roman Empire. We mentioned Charles V as the current Holy Roman Emperor, who's, you know, rather young at this point in time, listening to his advisors. Uh, we said that the Pope, Leo X, one of the most corrupt popes in Catholic history, uh, he uh, uh, excommunicated or kicked Martin Luther out of the Catholic Church. We talked about the Diet of Worms uh, that was a trial for Martin Luther. And then we ended with uh, the end of the trial where Martin Luther um, was whisked away, sent into hiding. And from there, he continued to write and try to reach out to his followers. And that's where we ended in the last episode. So today I want to talk about what impacts does he then have? Because now after the Diet, uh, Martin Luther, he's basically a convicted criminal. He is supposed to be an outcast in society, but he's not. He's loved. He is much more popular at this point now than, Mar or than Leo X, Pope Leo X, or than the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. He's really starting to gain ground, especially in the northern portion of the Holy Roman Empire, what is today you know, northern Germany. Um, in those territories, uh, they're very far from Italy. They're very far from Rome in the heart of the Catholic religion. So it kind of makes sense that that distance can play a very big role in the way that people are interpreting things. Uh, so it makes sense that the more northern regions are going to become much more uh, in line with Martin Luther and not seeing eye to eye with the Catholic Church and seeing the Catholic Church as being more corrupt. And people do begin to jump on his bandwagon. We see peasants begin to revolt, and, and not just revolting against the Catholic Church, but also revolting against political leaders. Again, the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V, his entire legitimacy is based on the legitimacy of popes. If the pope is being delegitimized, if Martin Luther is arguing and making it an argument that people seem to be agreeing with, 
that the Pope is not God's messenger, that the Pope is almost a false prophet, which is what Martin Luther is, is telling people at this point, then how can the Holy Roman Emperor be legitimate? If you're expecting the Holy Roman Emperor's legitimacy to be based on the legitimacy of the Pope, if the Pope is no longer a person of power, then de facto, neither is the Holy Roman Emperor. And that's why we start to see political uprisings, why we start to see people pushing back. You also do have this backlash. Charles V is trying to make sure people are practicing Catholicism. We see people being punished and harmed and killed for practicing anything outside of the Catholic religion. Uh, and so this huge revolt breaks out, and we start to see a civil war develop within the Holy Roman Empire over these issues. We start to see local princes, and you can think of these people kind of like governors here in the United States. We start to see certain princes jumping on Martin Luther's message and agreeing that they should be allowed to practice Lutheranism instead of this Catholicism. Uh, so this all is going to come to a head and going to end with what is known as the Peace of Augsburg. Uh, in 1555, Charles V calls together all of the local princes and so on within the Holy Roman Empire, and they talk this out. Um, the end result of the Peace of Augsburg is our first minute example of freedom of religion, you know, kind of what we would think of today. Now, this is not freedom of religion for you and me. This is freedom of religion for the princes. The Peace of Augsburg allows each local prince within the Holy Roman Empire to decide what religion will be practiced within their kingdom. So is it going to be Catholicism or Lutheranism? You get to choose between one or the two, and it's only the princes that get to choose. Whichever faith our prince would choose is what we would be forced to practice. So again, this isn't freedom of religion, but this is one of the first times where we start to see a form of government in Europe or the West uh, allowing for a different religion outside of Catholicism to be practiced. This, uh, this political movement, as well as with you know, Martin Luther's movement of questioning Catholicism and questioning the interpretation, that still spreads. You know, Martin Luther was not the first person to question these practices. He's just the first person to officially break away. And now that he's officially broken away and he hasn't died, he hasn't been murdered for this, and he's gained a public following, other individuals are going to be more inspired to do the same thing. One of them is going to be John Calvin. Now, John Calvin looks at both Martin Luther and the Catholic Church and says, you're both wrong. Uh, John Calvin and Calvinism that is going to be created out of his beliefs is still a Christian religion. But John Calvin believes in the philosophy of predestination. And this is the concept that God has already written the entire story of the world. God has already decided before creation which individuals will go to heaven and which will go to hell. And you and I are just living that story. The concept of predestination takes really kind of away any uh, fault of our own for our actions. God is the one who has decided what actions you will take, and you are just kind of living that out. So Calvinism um, argues that things should be more structured, that the religion itself should still be very highly structured and ritualized, uh, but also that your life should be very highly structured and ritualized, that it's not just the way that you practice your faith. It's the way you live your life. So John Calvin is actually going to set up a Calvinist 
uh, theocracy or a Calvinist uh, government within the, the city of Geneva in Switzerland. And here it is going to be a specific practice to practice Calvinism and, and the ideas of predestination and, and others. But we do see more breakout. As, as the Protestant Reformation continues to spread, we see other groups develop. We see groups such as the Anabaptists or the Baptists or the Quakers and the Mennonites and the Amish. And, and all of these different groups have very subtle uh, separ- differences that separate them from each other. Uh, for example, Anabaptists and Baptists are going to jump on the concept of baptism. They argue that we shouldn't baptize infants, that infants are too young to understand the acceptance of that faith, and that baptism, like any other sacrament, should be something that you can consciously make that decision of. If you can't consciously make the decision to accept God into your soul, then why should we allow you to perform that sacrament? That's what Baptists argue. And so Baptists and Anabaptists are going to make the argument that you should wait to be baptized until you're of, you know, an adult age. Um, That age can kind of differ between cultures and religions, whether 13, 15, 18, so on. Uh, But that we don't baptize infants. That's the big thing within baptism and Anabaptists. So, you know, I wanted to show you this because all of these groups are going to start to get very minor details that they're breaking away from each other, even though they're believing in the same God. They're believing in the same Jesus. They're reading the same book. They are finding very minute uh, practices that they want to uh, specify how they're different from others and their practices. And this brings us then into the creation of the Church of England. Now, I said at the beginning of this episode that you really would have wanted to listen to and watch the oversimplified video on Henry VIII. So I'm really going to kind of skip right over Henry VIII. Henry VIII causes this skirmish and breaks away from the Catholic Church and establishes what is known as the Church of England. And within the Church of England, it's really kind of set up just like the Catholic Church. It's just the churches within England are now separate institutions from the Catholic Church in Rome. But eventually after Henry VIII dies, there is still further skirmishes. Uh, Henry VIII does not give a legitimate male heir that lasts for very long, and one of his oldest daughters, Mary I, a.k.a. Bloody Mary, is going to come in and claim the throne. Now, Mary is a very staunch Catholic, very staunch Catholic, uh, and he, she is going to force England back into the Catholic Church and is going to prosecute and torture and slaughter anybody practicing the Protestant religion. And, and this is where she's going to get the nickname, Bloody Mary. Eventually, her sister, or old, uh, her sister Elizabeth I, is going to be able to take power. Um, she's going to lock Mary up, um, and Elizabeth I creates this compromise with the people that the official religion of the Church of England uh, is going to or the official religion of England is going to be the Church of England, and that uh, Catholics though are allowed to practice their religion without fear of punishment. Uh, there won't, you can't be punished or killed for practicing Catholicism. So within England, this is kind of our first example of a freedom of religion concept that you and I would be allowed to practice, that you and I could decide to practice between Catholicism or Anglicanism, also known as the Church of England. So this is really... Uh, 
groundbreaking, one, because it does have political impacts, and hopefully you got that from the video, um, and two, because this is giving us further examples of uh, of some more odd reasons why we've created certain churches. I don't want to spoil anything for anybody who didn't watch the video, but you'll see the real reason uh, why Henry VIII broke away from the church. Henry VIII breaks away for slightly different reasons than Calvin or Luther. But with all of these new uh, denominations of Christianity popping up and kind of questioning the authority of the church, the Catholic church, the Catholic church gets to a point where they, they do need to fix something. They are hemorrhaging believers, and they need to stop this, um, uh, this, this torrent of people leaving the Catholic Church. And so they come up with what they call the Catholic Reformation or the Counter-Reformation. You know, this is the Catholics trying to counter the Protestant Reformation. So the Pope at the time, which at this point in time is no longer Leo X, but the Pope at the time calls together what is known as the Council of Trent. This is where a pope will call together all the cardinals and the bishops, all the highest-ranking individuals within the Catholic Church, and they kind of discuss issues. Here they're going to discuss, you know, how do we address this Protestant Reformation? How do we address these people questioning our beliefs? Well, they do two major things within the Council of Trent. First, they do vow to end some of the corruption within the church. They do, they do admit that they've got a bit of a corruption problem, uh, they are going to try to spend less, uh, try to work to make sure that the priests are not living overly lavish lifestyles and, you know, pocketing too much money and all these things. But they, uh, the Catholic Church, though, still reaffirms their doctrine. They do still say that, well, you know, Martin Luther, you are wrong. You do still need the seven sacraments, and you do still need a priest to perform those sacraments. Uh, so they're still reaffirming everything that they believe, but sort of giving a nod to the fact that you're right, there are certain things we need to fix. But with this, and along with the Spanish government at the time, um, with this Reformation effort, the Catholics are going to institute what is known as the Inquisition, where they are going to kind of, uh, they're going to hit the ground running on forcing people to practice Catholicism again. You're going to see uh, individuals be pushed out. So this is where we start to see things like witch hunts, uh, pointing at people and using them as scapegoats in society um, for all of the world's problems, you know, calling them Protestants or Jews or Muslims, you know, being practicing these things in secret. And the Catholic Church and the other inquisitors, the other uh, figures in the Catholic Church designated to investigate these these secret Protestants, uh, will, would torture these individuals to death, torture them until they got a confession about the fact that they were practicing Protestantism or worshiping the devil or any other lie that, that had been told. If you didn't, if you didn't, uh, you know, actually state that you were practicing a, a separate religion outside of Catholicism, if you didn't admit to that, then they would still kill you anyway. I mean, this, this, this inquisition is, is not a legitimate trial, and, and we never should think it is. 
But this is the way that the Catholic Church begins to react. And, and this is a time of true violence. You know, I don't want you to think that only the Catholic Church is the one being violent. Again, we had the Peasants' Revolt. We, we had an example of people harboring very deep Protestant beliefs, and yes, early Protestant beliefs, pushing back physically, using violence in war. This is something that is, both sides are very guilty over and, and why these issues of fighting over religious beliefs are going to continue further into Western society. Okay, so that's really all, that kind of wraps up our discussion here of the Protestant Reformation, of the official first couple of Catholic or Christian churches that break away from Catholicism. You know, we mentioned, obviously, Martin Luther and Lutheranism. We mentioned John Calvin and Calvinism, and we mentioned the English Reformation and the Church of England, also known as Anglicanism. And we talked about the Baptists and Anabaptists and some other groups. So this is important because today we have over 2,000 different denominations of Christianity. Just, just out of the sheer breaking away from the Catholic Church, that is a, it shows massive historic significance. But this also puts Europe on a path towards almost taking religion out of politics to a degree. Uh, they're moving away from, you know, having to have the Pope and God acknowledge whatever rulers and so on. And, and that's going to play, that's going to have very big repercussions and play a very big role in political revolutions moving on further down the line. Um, obviously, there are many arguments that it played a huge role in the American Revolution even. So this is one of the most important sections that we are going to talk about, even though it is old and it is kind of abs or abstract and a little, a little obscure, but... Uh, I do expect you guys to have gone down through this. Make sure that you answer the questions that are posted to the classroom that, that accompany this lecture. If any of you have any questions on any of these issues, again, you can always reach out to me at any time. Other than that, that's all that I have for you. So have a great day and keep your name out of the paper except for doing good deeds. <laughs>